Professor Sir Edward Byrne, AC, is a leading neuroscientist and clinician and former Monash University Vice-Chancellor. He's also the former president and principal of King's College London. He qualified in medicine at the University of Tasmania in 1974 and then trained as a neurologist in both Adelaide and London. Professor Byrne has held many prestigious clinical and research positions in Australia and the UK, as well as advisory roles for a number of charitable bodies relating to his clinical and scientific expertise. Professor Byrne received the Order of Australia in 2006 and a companion in the Order of Australia, an AC in 2014. He has wide interests in the arts and has written several books of poetry. He's now chairing the new Sir General John Monash Leadership Academy that is designed to maximise the impact of John Monash Foundation scholars and harness their incredible skills for the benefit of Australia. Sir Edward will also be working alongside former Prime Minister Julia Gillard to build the professional profiles of the Foundation's scholars, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast series. And it gives me great pleasure to say I have Professor Sir Edward Byrne with me as my special guest today. Professor Byrne, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much, Justin. Pleased to be with you. So tell me, how did you become involved with the Sir General John Monash Foundation? Justin, uh, two reasons. Uh, Firstly, and most immediately, uh, I know quite a number of the governors uh, of the uh, foundation, uh, and uh, indeed, uh, some of them are outstanding Australians who are counted among my friends. So I was delighted to be approached to see if I had any interest. But uh, perhaps more importantly, I've always been interested in John Monash and his career. Um, it was perhaps strengthened by my time as uh, Vice-Chancellor of a great university called after him, Monash University, uh, mm. also because of his my knowledge of his time as a, an engineer, uh, an academic. He was the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne for a while that not many people know, uh, as well as, of course, uh, Australia's undoubtedly greatest soldier, uh, a man mm. of uh, incredible uh, personal attributes who achieved what he did in the face of considerable adversity and personal hardship. Well, what are the, some of the things that you admire about John Monash? Well, he, he, in his time, uh, almost everything was stacked against him. Uh, he came from Germany uh, at a time of uh, huge antipathy between the British Empire and Germany. He had a Jewish background uh, at a time when the vileness of anti-Semitism was still rife. Uh, He was a citizen soldier at a time when the professionals didn't really admire citizen soldiers that much. Uh, And he came from the colonies uh, at a time when the British Empire was very much London-centred. And in spite of all of that, he rose to the pinnacle of achievement, uh, certainly as a soldier, 
where his achievements uh, on the Western Front were legendary, but also when he came back uh, to Australia, um, playing such a huge role uh, in developing an industrial base for his state, Victoria, uh, and showing huge leadership uh, in the development of education uh, in this country. It must have been a huge honour for you personally to be the Vice-Chancellor of Monash University. It was something I never aspired to, Justin. Um, mm. I always envisaged my career uh, as a medical researcher, uh, a treating neurologist, a treating clinician uh, for many years. Uh, and then uh, I aspired to run uh, medical research institutes and medical and health faculties. So I was, uh, I was really pleased to be given the opportunity to run Monash University, which is a massive institution with campuses uh, around the world. Uh, and uh, it would be one of the most enjoyable periods of my life, without any doubt. I mentioned in my introduction that you qualified in medicine um, in 1974 at the University of Tasmania. Let's wind the clock back a little bit and talk <laughs> through some of, some of those days uh, back at the University of Tasmania. What was that like? Well, it was brilliant, actually. My uh, my dad was a GP from the north of England, uh, and he'd met uh, some Australian soldiers when he served in the desert in the British Army. And he always had a hankering to come to Australia. And uh, eventually he got a job uh, when I was 15 as a psychiatrist at the main mental hospital in Tasmania. So lo and behold, I think I turned 16 on the boat on the way out. Uh, our family <laughs> moved to, uh, to Australia. And uh, I, I didn't look back. Uh, I, I think actually I, I enjoyed it more than my dad did. But <laughs> the, uh, the the medical school there was amazing because it had just opened. Uh, I was, was in the mm -hmm. third year. Uh, the classes were very small. Um, it was supported still by the University of Adelaide, where Tasmanians who wanted to do medicine had trained in the past. Uh, so I always had strong connections with Adelaide uh, and uh, eventually ended up moving to Adelaide to do the young doctor years and to uh, specialise. And I, I, I loved my time in Adelaide too. So the possibly Australia's two smallest capital cities, I, I might have that wrong, but certainly at a state level, that's right. Uh, and yeah. I love them both. <laughs> so you had, um, you had medicine in the family um, was that something that you were conscious of when you were trying to figure out a career for yourself, what um, what to do? Not really. And uh, paradoxically, um, if, I, if we hadn't moved to Australia, I don't know if I would have done medicine. You know, I might have ended up at Oxford or Cambridge doing a, a social sciences uh, politics degree. Uh, I hadn't quite settled on medicine. But, but coming to Australia... Uh, um, I thought I needed a career, uh, and uh, you know, I, I certainly <laughs> had to do something. I certainly preferred medicine to law, and uh, not that there's yeah. anything wrong with law for any lawyers out there, but it was, <laughs> it was just, I was just more suited to it. And uh, I, um, and then every year that I I was engaged as a student, it grew on me more, uh, and uh, I realised uh, probably before graduating that I wanted to specialise and. I'd always been interested in the brain, which took me into brain medicine, neurology. Uh, and then um, as I discovered that so little was known about brain illness, uh, I wanted to have a career in research as well as clinical medicine. So that's basically the story of the first half of my working life, uh, a desire to discover 
more about the causes of brain illness and hopefully better treatments uh, and uh, uh, diagnosing and looking after patients. And uh, it was immensely satisfying but challenging and, uh, and um, at times uh, hard work. Well, tell us about that, if, uh, if you may. You're a leading neuroscientist. For those that are not familiar with that field of medicine, what, what is that all about and, and, and where has your career taken you? Yeah, sort of uh, brain medicine falls into two parts. You, you have uh, disorders of the, of the mind, which are generally thought of under the rubric psychiatry, uh, and physical disorders of the nervous system, which fall under the area neurology. So I was a neurologist, and the types of conditions I would be treating would be uh, multiple sclerosis, brain tumors, uh, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, stroke. Um, when I came to Melbourne, there were very few neurologists, and I, I had a mm. very busy workload. I, I sort of jumped ahead a bit, but uh, after I finished... Uh, my young doctor years in Adelaide, I went to London to the Institute of Neurology in London, which was then probably as now the heart of neurology on earth. Yeah. Uh, and I finished my clinical training and did a research doctorate. And I made a, um, a modest discovery there, but it was a time when not much was being discovered contributing uh, to an area called mitochondrial disease as one of the early pioneers. Uh, and this led me to be appointed in my very early 30s as the head of neurology and later the head of neurology and neurosurgery uh, at St. Vincent's Hospital, a big hospital in Melbourne. Uh, and um, there I developed my clinical career and my research laboratories. And I had almost 20 uh, incredibly happy years uh, I might must say that my colleagues there uh, were just wonderful, uh, and um, I had the opportunity to meet so many uh, inspirational people as patients, uh, and of course uh, their families. It was uh, it was a great time. And then later on, you're um, you're in academia, running one of the most prestigious universities, certainly in Australia, if not the world. Well, that came out of uh, my research. My research grew and grew, mm. and I ended up, you know, running a research institute then running uh, probably as the first ongoing director of the Centre for Neuroscience at the University of Melbourne, which concentrated on basic science. Uh, and uh, that led me uh, to uh, be appointed in the early 2000s as the Dean of Medicine, uh, Nursing and Health Sciences, a number of faculties at Monash University, uh, which again, I loved. I mean, a brilliant university. I'd always worked at the University of Melbourne uh, prior to that, uh, and uh, it was great uh, getting to know another institution. Um, that went well, uh, and I had the opportunity to return to London uh, to be the, the the head of the health faculties at University College London, which is probably the strongest health and medical research university in Europe with multiple Nobel laureates and fellows of the Royal Society, um, absolutely on the crest of the wave in health research in so many areas. And again, I love that, you know, and uh, I would have been quite happy to finish my career doing that. But rather out of the blue, I was tapped on the shoulder and asked if I'd be interested in being the vice chancellor of Monash. Uh, and because I'd, uh, the Vice-Chancellor, for those not in the know, is the sort of president or chief executive of the university. Uh, and um, because I'd loved my time there running the health faculty so much and knew Monash was such a strong institution with a presence really around the world, uh, I was honoured to take that on. And I had a 
fantastic, uh, you know, almost seven years there, which was just a brilliant time. And now um, you are in charge of the Leadership Academy yeah. at the Sir General John Monash Foundation. We've we've gone full circle. Well, not not quite. There was another interlude. I was uh, I, I was either promoted or moved sideways, depending on how you do these things. To run yes. as the Vice Chancellor Kings in London, which is a one of the world's absolutely greatest universities, where many of the discoveries uh, that have made the modern world what it is have been made. Uh, and uh, I'd always loved London. Uh, I've loved uh, all my stays there. Uh, so the only two cities I know well are London and Melbourne. Uh, and I had a brilliant, you know, some seven years at King's, uh, which seemed to do all right when I was running it uh, with lots of really amazing stuff going on. Uh, and after that, I always planned to return to Australia with my wife to, of course, spend more time with our children and grandchildren here uh, and uh, to build up a little bit of a portfolio. Uh, I was particularly interested in things where somebody who was a little older but had a lot of experience could make a difference. So mm. when approached about chairing the uh, General Sir John Monash Leadership Foundation, uh, I was just delighted to be given the opportunity to make a, a small contribution there because I, I think it's incredibly worthwhile. And so, Professor, what role do you think the Leadership Academy will have as a platform uh, for the scholars and and the the Monash Foundation in general, I don't think it's uh, controversial uh, to say that the uh, uh, arguably the single most important thing uh, in the future of any great country uh, is the is the next generation uh, and the leaders uh, it produces and nurtures, uh, and that's what the whole uh, General Sir John Monash enterprise uh, is about. Uh, uh, it's about um, identifying brilliant people of promise and giving them the opportunity to extend their, their learnings and experience across almost every discipline you can think of in some of the world's very greatest universities outside Australia. And, of course, that's an area I know very well from my yes. own background. Uh, and um, the idea of the, um, the Leadership Academy uh, is that when these brilliant young people uh, return to Australia, uh, we continue to support and nurture them uh, and give them uh, and assist them in making their best contribution to the country at large. Uh, you know, leaders take a long time to grow. Uh, the, um, the General Sir John Monash Foundation is devoted to, you know, helping a number of our potentially great young people uh, on their journey. Uh, and the Leadership Academy is about further support and nurturing, but not only to help them, but to help the country get its best contribution from these brilliant young people. Mm, very well said. What do you think some of the big challenges are for these scholars looking to make a mark uh, in the world, particularly after they've done their, um, done their studies? I've had a lot of experience with leadership work, uh, uh, mainly but not exclusively at the great universities I've run, where leadership and leadership development has always been a major theme for me. Uh, I inherit that, that, inherited that at Monash from my wonderful predecessor, uh, Richard Larkins, who'd started a leadership academy within Monash, which I nurtured, uh, in which I further extended or copied, really, when I got to London for Kings. Uh, but turning to the um, Sir John Monash Leadership Academy, um, Leadership for young people 
as a complex thing, you know, and the the sort of three or four aspects to it. The the foundation, I think, to all leadership is to be at peace and at one with oneself, uh, and to have um, supportive and engaging engaging relations with one's family and friends, because that's the basis on which everything follows. But then, in terms of perhaps what I could think of as more external leadership, the the two key aspects are leadership in your discipline and profession, uh, you know, whatever that may be, uh, law, engineering, medicine, accountancy, public service, uh, whatever it is, uh, 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 absolute leadership. Uh, and, and then perhaps um, I could think of it as a different gear, uh, moving from that or alongside that, developing community leadership, becoming someone who not only is acknowledged personally for the values you espouse, but you step up and play some role in public life. Um, yeah. One of the many uh, venues available to our young leaders. And gosh, we need them. We need them now more than ever to do that. And why, why do you say that? Well, it's a, such a challenging world, isn't it? I, I think one would have to be Rumpelstiltskin, uh, a chap uh, <laughs> from my youth I read about who slept for 20 years and then woke up at the world of change, <laughs> or, uh, or at the very least, to have your head Still in the sand. To spell his name. You know, yeah, you know, not to realise that it's a much more challenging world today than it was even 10 years ago. You know, we uh, we have the challenge uh, in our country, wonderful country here, Australia, of the massive change in geopolitical context, the breakdown of the relationship with China, for example, uh, the increasing militarization of the area of the world around us, uh, the uh, desperate challenges imposed by COVID, which we we will undoubtedly overcome, uh, and of course, um, looming the the long-term or medium-term challenges now imposed by things like climate change. So it's Mm. going to be a really uh, challenging and demanding Uh, place for the next generation of leaders, I think much more so than perhaps any uh, group of leaders have faced uh, since World War II. Uh, And you will note when you go back to World War II and look who did things and achieved things, I mean, Churchill was an old guy, but most of the people who did things and made things happen were quite young. Mm. We need smart, passionate people to lead the country. Yes, smart, passionate, gifted young people, and we need to help them get on with it. Sir Edward, you mentioned COVID-19. Obviously, the entire world has been adversely affected by uh, the virus, the pandemic. Um, The tertiary sector in particular has done things incredibly tough. With the borders being closed, we're not getting international students, certainly from an Australian context, um, into the sector. Um, What are your thoughts on how our tertiary sector in Australia can, can try to recover? Well, uh, I think the two aspects to that, you know, the uh, the first thing that impresses me about the tertiary sector, and this applies very much to Australia too, certainly to the UK, uh, is that the the research done by the tertiary sector uh, is guiding us out of this pandemic. Mm. I mean, the basic science that led to vaccine discovery was largely done in the tertiary sector and the university world, uh, the massive amount of modelling uh, that's guiding government. I mean, every second day or day you hear the Doherty Institute mentioned at the University of Melbourne. Mm. You know, this is really practical stuff, uh, and it's made a massive difference. Uh, also, of course, uh, all of the health professionals that are getting countries through this are trained in our universities. So I, I think the 
the university sector has really stepped up to the plate as never before uh, in these incredibly difficult times uh, and shown its worth. Uh, Australia, um, uh, UK um, is you know where universities have been world universities with young people coming to them from almost every land uh, has been affected by the almost cessation almost complete cessation of international student movement and mm. going back now some 15 months. Um, I think that will continue to fall heavily uh, on Australia's universities. The um, I personally don't see the international student market uh, ever getting back to where it was before. Uh, I think it will partially restore. Uh, I think Australia perhaps won't be as dependent upon Chinese students as it came to be just before the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having said that, I'm sure significant numbers of Chinese students will will come to Australia again for their university experience. Uh, but I, I think we're going to see quite a formatting of the university system, a reformatting. Um, I, I wrote a book on this with. Uh, Charles Clark, who was Tony yes. Blair's education secretary and home secretary, uh, called the University Challenge. Uh, uh, and we set out in that book uh, the need for universities around the world to find a new gear, you know, not only to do things they were doing better, but to do new things. Uh, because so much of society's research capacity is in the university sector that we must make sure this is aligned and performing uh, for the challenges our country and the world faces. Um, we also must make sure we're educating young people in the university sector for the jobs of tomorrow and not the jobs of yesterday. So I, I think the sector was starting to change before COVID. And I think the massive changes of COVID uh, induced by COVID will accelerate these changes. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, the whole university sector around the world pretty much pivoted online almost overnight. Uh, it won't, won't yeah. stay that way. Uh, but many of the things that were, were achieved... Uh, will be embedded into the model going ahead so it'll be it'll be it will be fascinating and interesting uh, to observe how the university system in this country and internationally continues to adapt to very different circumstances over the next few years given those comments do you think it's incumbent on uh, the federal government to continue to adequately uh, fund research programs and the tertiary sector uh, at large uh, well, well, the short answer to that is yes, you know, because the the tertiary sector contributes so much to the country, uh, not just in education, which is obvious, but also in the in the research and the intellectual property de- 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 generation uh, on which ed- most clever industry in this country will be founded. Uh, but I mean, Cochlear, for example, which I was involved with for many years, came out of basic research at the University of Melbourne. Uh, but um, I don't think it's a one-way street. You know, I, I think the university sector needs to accelerate its adaption, adaptation uh, to the needs of the country uh, and the world. And at times, I think it's been a little slow to do that. So I certainly don't think uh, funding in the future should just be more of the same or, or just Band-Aid funding. Um, I think it, be, it should be support for a sector in transformation. When we go back to the Leadership Academy uh, Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister, is the patron. Have you have you ever had the chance to either to meet Julia Gillard or, or, or work with her in any capacity? No, uh, not only have I had the chance to meet her, she's a very good friend. Uh, Excellent. I, 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 persuade, I, I got to know her very well when she was a, an outstanding education minister in a Labour government when I was the VC at Monash. 
uh, and uh, in in London, uh, I persuaded her to take a a, 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 a um, you know very significant salaried role, not a full time role, but a significant role as the executive chair uh, of a new international institute for women in leadership, which he led splendidly. Uh, I saw a lot of her uh, in her time in London, and of course she's now the chairperson of the Wellcome Trust, so a yeah, hugely influential position in that part of the world. <coughs> I should say, though, just to be uh, you know, balanced, that uh, I also persuaded Alexander Downer from the other side of politics yes, to, uh, yes. uh, to lead a new school for government at King's in London, and he was also brilliant. Um, Julia, I think, um, is a person of huge goodwill, uh, and mm. um, an absolutely inspirational person for young people uh, as a role model. Uh, so I, I think it's wonderful that she's agreed to be the patron uh, of the Leadership Academy. When we think about the uh, the Academy, uh, what would you like to see happen as a result of the formation of the Academy? Well, I, I, I'm a great believer in outputs rather than inputs. I mean, inputs are important, but inputs are put into something in the, in the hope that what comes out is worthwhile. And what will come out of the academy, and I'm sure this will happen, uh, because with the caliber of the scholars, the uh, uh, the Sir John Monash program attracts, it would be almost impossible for this not to happen, is that the young people who go through the academy uh, find it very worthwhile uh, in terms of developing uh, their own skill set uh, and the road belief in themselves. Uh, and, you know, part of this will be outward facing, uh, uh, developing a, uh, you know, a, a, a brilliant academy of some of our very best young people who help with things like expert uh, opinions, uh, probably public speaking, where young people are called for. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might keep their scholarly outputs uh, online in some sort of library. Uh, there may even, some of them may even be people who could act as expert consultants. Uh, so I regard that as a series of outward-facing initiatives. That inward-facing to help the scholars' development will be ongoing mentoring programs, an ongoing leadership development program, which will be central to the uh, the academy. Uh, a return to Australia webinar series. You know, when, when often if you've had a brilliant time at Harvard or Oxford or Kings, you come back to Australia and you're, and you're back in your ordinary world, and it can be a bit flat. So we we have to yes. help them adjust and not lose their energy. Uh, and um, we'll also have some collaborative grants uh, to help them pursue uh, programs that they're really interested in. So there'll be a, all of this won't happen overnight because we're just at the launch pad, but there'll be a, a whole series of outward-facing and inward-facing initiatives uh, aimed at, uh, you know, firstly, helping this brilliant group of scholars continue to interact with each other and evolve uh, and take their own place uh, as leaders in our country. Uh, and secondly, uh, uh, helping uh, uh, in an outward-facing way uh, uh, the country benefit uh, from their, their brilliance uh, and capacity. What does the future look like for Australia's education sector? Would you say we have a, we have a bright future? Yes, uh, I mean, we could interpret that in a number of ways. I'll restrict it simply to the tertiary sector. Um, But of course, one could spend ages talking about uh, secondary education and primary education. But the the tertiary sector in Australia, for a country of our size, is very strong. Uh, We have a number of great universities. Um, 
the educational offerings are pretty good. But but I don't think anybody who's been fully engaged in universities for a long time, uh, as I have at all levels, but you know for uh, you know the best part of two decades of leadership roles at vice chancellor level. Uh, would think that there wasn't room for improvement or reform uh, in the sector. Uh, we certainly haven't got any everything right, uh, and there are the opportunities to do things much better uh, in the years ahead. And I hope that some of the leaders that we're uh, helping through this great uh, program uh, will play a role in that. You've mentioned leadership. Do you think it's possible to define what good leadership no matter where it is, whether it's in academia, in the classroom, at home, on the sporting pitch, what good leadership looks like? Well, there are, of course, numerous learned <laughs> terms on that. But just to cut to the core, I'll just say three things. I think selfish leadership and leadership devoted to the needs of the individual themselves always ends up bad leadership. Uh, even though with a bit of charisma and gloss, uh, it may not look so bad originally. And I I don't think one needs to look too far around us internationally to see plenty of examples of that, Uh, not just in the United States, but but elsewhere. Uh, Good leadership, I think, has has three things. Um, An aspirational quality, uh, an ability to see, as Kennedy said, uh, what can be and not what is, and what a leader he was, what a fantastic leader. I, my uh, hair still go up on the back of my neck when I remember the very great speeches I heard as a very young person. Mm. <laughs> I think the best of my lifetime. Um, the second quality is uh, is generosity. Um, all the really great leaders I know have been generous people. Uh, they've been aware of the needs of other people. Uh, they haven't been consumed uh, in themselves. Um, and the third thing is, uh, you know, it's sometimes called uh, collegiate leadership, is that um, for really major projects, uh, I, I could say seldom, but I, I'd stick my neck out and say they're never achieved by just one person in today's world. Um, it, it's all about a group of committed people coming together uh, and working in an inspirational way on something incredibly worthwhile. Um, a very famous American anthropologist of my youth, Margaret Mead, who's gone out of favor a little now, but one of the very true things she said was, don't ask if a group of committed citizens working together can change the world. Nothing else can. Uh, and I firmly believe that. Hmm. I notice you've still got a little bit of an accent there. I have, and... <laughs> but, uh, but when I turned up uh, in Hobart, Tasmania, uh, having come from the depths of Geordie Land, do you know where that is? Yes, yes, I do. You on time. My accent was so broad that my colleagues at St Virgil's Grammar School could not understand what I was saying. <laughs> so I, I, had to, I had to rapidly acquire, shall I call it a, a slightly more refined, uh, half refined Northern, half semi refined Australian accent. I wonder. You, you've mentioned a number of times uh, Melbourne, London, Melbourne, London. Have you figured out how many trips you've done or frequent fly, flyer miles you might have racked well, up well, over over the years going well, back and forth? Too many. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in my research days when we were on the crest of the wave and leading a, one of the world's leading groups out of Melbourne, 
uh, just to keep your uh, work uh, in the art and the common eye of the scientific community you had to travel a lot and give papers all over the place so I've been traveling widely internationally since my early 30s and then my uh, my leadership roles in universities, especially Monash, uh, with its campuses all over the world, you had to travel. I probably spent more time out of Australia than I than I did in. Um, and in the midst of all of this, I uh, I had long stints on big boards. Uh, I was mm. on the main board of Cochlea, the Australian biotech company, for 18 years. Uh, much of that based in London, so I was flying backwards all the time for board meetings. Uh, I was on the board of Booper, both in London and in Australia. Uh, and I got to the stage where it sounds crazy, but I, I would quite often fly from uh, London to Sydney uh, and I'd be on the same plane uh, on the way back uh, that Stop evening. Stop it. Stop uh, it. What, you came in for a meeting I and then turned that, around? I used to do that quite a lot now. I think anybody who did that now would be a, would be a climate change uh, uh, delinquent. Uh, but uh, it was a different wow. world then, and we weren't quite as aware of these uh, these nuances. So I certainly wouldn't do that now. So you've got a you've got a dual citizenship, as I understand it. Yes, I was born in uh, born in England. So I was uh, I spent my uh, up to what were they called O levels then in England. Uh, and then I did finish my schooling and did university in Australia. And I regard myself though as totally Australian, you know, but I mean, I, I was born in England, so I have dual citizenship and that has been helpful in in ensuring they didn't kick me out when I worked in the UK for more extended periods. So the big question I haven't asked is when the ashes are on, who do you support? Look, um, if you said rugby, uh, always the Wallabies, always the Wallabies. Yes. For some reason, I always found cricket more difficult, you know. And it was, it goes, <laughs> Is that right? It goes, it, Is well, that it right? goes back to uh, St. Virgil's College. Um, mm-hmm. I think I was still at school. I was at school on my first year at university. And um, you've got to be quite old to remember this, but uh, uh, Ray Illingworth, a Yorkshireman, uh, brought out a team uh, for the Ashes. Uh, and uh, he had a fast bowler who... Uh, didn't have a long career, but he was a brilliant fast bowler called John Snow. And remember, I'd only been in Australia less than a year. And I remember listening to my radio uh, as John Snow knocked the Aussie batsman over. It was Simpson Laurie. He knocked them over one by one. Uh, and Illingworth won the series 2 0 or 3 0. And it was, it was so, so fun uh, with my new friends at St. Virgil's College, you know. Oh, so my, but my my boys, uh, who of course are totally Australian, they, they would they would rag me over the years and say, "Dad, you know, it really is about time you supported Australia in cricket too." So I must say, when I went back to the UK this time, and I, I did go to some Ashes tests, uh, I did support Australia. But it's, excellent. I, I'm getting on a bit, so it's taken me the best part of seventy years to get to that point. It's a very 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 good very good answer. And, and it's probably uh, a great a great way to finish uh, the interview. Professor Sir Edward Byrne, AC, it's been wonderful having you as a guest today. It's been a real honour. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much.